And we are live. That's nice. All right, so lesson 33. I, I could not be more excited about this particular class. I've shared that with a couple of you. And uh, let's see if we can't get a blessing here. And if you've got a Chumash or a Tanakh revival with you, we'll be in a Kev, which is in page 55. And if you've got a uh, Machsor like me. All right. Baruch Atah Adonai Elohim Melech HaOlam Asher Pachorbanu Micho HaAmim Benatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen. Thank you. So this is um, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. I'll skip to 14 to save us a little bit of time. Actually 16 uh, in the uh, portion of a Kev. Um, for those of you who haven't been here long enough, um, Greg Upham is uh, obviously, you know, such a wonderful Torah scholar, a humble man and a great man of God. Um, it's been a great uh, inspiration to me. When we hit a Kev last year, we got to this verse that I'm about to read, and he said, this is the new covenant, guys. If you missed it, you want to reread it. If you're a believer in Messiah Yeshua, you need to know this because this is the new covenant. You know, and everybody's looking at him dumbfounded like, new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, right? Mm -hmm. Through 34. And he's like, right. And that's elucidating this. So here it is. Again, Devarim 10, 16. You should circumcise the foreskin of your heart which blocks you from serving God, and you should stop being stiff-necked. For God, your God, is God of gods and a master of masters, the great, mighty, and awesome God who does not show favor and will not accept a bribe. Yet he is sensitive to enact judgment for the orphan and widow, and he loves the convert and gives him bread and clothing. That's the new covenant that God himself will circumcise our hearts. So, with that... We get a follow-up reference, I think, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, 32? 4. Okay. Right, right and that's where I am. Oh, okay. Um, but same deal, right? Uh, the whole circumcising of the heart. So, um, I'm in... Uh, Devarim 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So he made a pact with the people of the land and set up shop to sell cream to do... No, that's not here. That, that's wrong. Sorry. No, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. And behold the, skin, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil 
until he came out. When he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So That's was, Exodus 34, right? That is Exodus 34. So was there any fading of the glory? Was there any the shine disappearing? Was he putting the veil on his face because the shine was fading and he felt bad about it? Was he embarrassed that uh, he needed to go get recharged? Did you hear any of that? No. No. And yet that's what the translations would lead you to believe. That's what the church would lead you to believe, that Moses did this for some reason that had to do with pride or saving face. God's... Yeah, saving face. <laughs> Literally. Don't, don't, you know, for, for, for God's... Uh, God's deal there. There's some weird Greek. Well, first Second Corinthians three, right? Well, we're going. We're going to Second Corinthians three now, and this is this got to be one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, but I, before we go, I want to make sure that the Torah is clear. Okay. Why did Moses put on the veil? It doesn't say. It, yeah, it does not say. It almost implies that. In a weird way, almost the opposite of what Paul's saying, where he put on the veil, you take off the veil to see God, you keep the veil off to tell people what God said, and then it was almost like it was too holy for them to see what was going on okay. if he wasn't relaying God's words. Exactly. And so he puts a veil on. Yeah. And I, I, don't know, I have no problem with that. You, you, you can get that from what we just read. Right. That there's fading and, you know, that's not even, well, you dissipation. Whether well, it's not fading, he almost feels like he's hiding it um, because it's not appropriate for that context. It could be. But we would have to speculate as to why. All we know is when he spoke with God, there's no veil. When he came out and told the people what God said, there's no veil. But as soon as he was done talking, Moses was veiled. Paul is going to use that and he's going to do an awesome drosh because if you if you veil Moses what are you really veiling? Okay. Moses we'll see is code for the Torah. So the whole Torah is veiled because Moses is veiled. So let's take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, just by, by way of introduction, we're looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 3. And this is the second letter that Paul's writing to these folks. And it appears that once again, he has to defend his position. He's constantly trying to make it clear that he's a valid apostle and you know he's 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 got the, it, he's got the creds. I think it's very important to figure out a little bit why. And um, in this particular book, it's interesting. He doesn't really seem to identify his opponents until the very end. He spends basically the entire book, maybe, yeah. pretty much making yeah. his argument, but he doesn't identify who he's arguing against until the last two chapters, three chapters. Um, but it would appear based on that description 
that he's dealing with some of the same problem that he's got with the Galatians. Correct. He goes in, teaches, and then somebody else tries to clean some up. Some folks after him. show up after he's he's gone, and they seem, based on the way that he defends himself, they seem to indicate that they have some sort of claim to Messiah, maybe loosely, so that they're not quite the same the same type of people we see in Galatians, but they also seem to feel like they have more qualifications based off of some sort of smicha uh, uh, blessing sure. from rabbinic and, sources or something like and that. I, and I think it's important to recognize that they don't even need to be professing to follow Yeshua. Although he mentions a couple times, if they are, then I'm much more so or something yeah, like yeah. that. But, but not necessarily all of them. Hmm. So, you know, bottom line is, groups are coming in, folks are coming in, wherever they line up, they're maligning Paul. Bottom line. Right, for so, different reasons. Right, so he's got to defend himself. And as I put in the study guide, the, the idea that, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks want to call him Rabbi, Rabbi Shaul, Right, you know, or Rabbi Paul, um, and I, you know, I'm quoting a lot from uh, Tim Hegg here in his excellent study, uh, "What's So New About the New Covenant." Um, but I agree with Tim, who says, "I, I don't think Paul was a rabbi. Don't think he ever finished the course. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel, was learning. He's a bright student. He's got enough chutzpah." And he's got enough clout, enough good cred, to be able to go to the Sadducees, to the priests, and say, these, these followers are of the way. This, this is nasty business. Give me some letters. I'll go put them in, in prison. I'll, I'll bring them back in chains. So he's got to be a somebody. He can't be a schmo. Mm -hmm. But the idea that he actually finished the course and, and received smicha, laying out of hand so that he could teach in the name of his teacher, which would be Gamaliel, not only does he never do, but one has to question. If he didn't have Smicha before he asked for those letters and went out to fight the way, he never came back. On the way to fight the way, he fell along the way and met the master. Mm -hmm. And he never returned to say, gosh, guys, I don't know if you realize it, but you're fighting against God himself. And I think Gamaliel was talking about that last time that these guys got pulled in. You might want to listen to him. Now, could, could anybody give me smicha so I can go to... That never happened. So, I, I think it makes sense that Jewish leaders of some type, of some ilk, of some background, would surely want to question Paul's authority to teach in any way, because he did not have smicha. But then there's a secondary problem, which is that apparently he wasn't that impressive of a speaker. Yeah, he seems to be better in writing and more bold, if you will, when he writes. I think I'm that way too. I'm that way too. <laughs> Well, well, you know, that's the whole idea behind chat boards, right? On the internet. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, but he, no, but I'm just saying, like, 
it's not so much that maybe he doesn't have the courage or the stamina, because he does quite a bit of speaking, we see in the book of yeah, Acts. absolutely. But more that, um, maybe he went really nasally, um, he just didn't sound or look that well, impressive. I, I think the look is the deal. You know, because uh, the whole uh, thorn in the flesh deal that he right. gets into, right? Um, I've heard, I think, two good arguments. One is an eye. One, one was it was a pussy, drippy, yeah. icky eye. Hmm. And one that he walked with a limp, some, 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 some type of hip injury. Well, this is the FDR thing, right? Yeah. So FDR is only like the president. They wouldn't let newspapers run photos of him. That's right. Because he's in a wheelchair. And, and, and no man, we, I mean, we even see it in movies, no man can be elected president if he's in a wheelchair. Can't happen. Which is ridiculous, but that's because we have you know, these stigmas associated exactly. with speaking as exactly. associated to what they look like. Right. Exactly right. A guy with one arm, right? So bottom line is hip, eye. I'm thinking more eye than hip because if he's standing there talking to you right. and giving this great argument, for example, in, uh, in Ephesus, right? He's not going to be walking around on a stage. So the fact that he may walk with a limp, who cares? Right. But if he's standing there, no matter what he says, he's got this drippy, ugly eye thing going. I, I can see where that would be a problem. Right. You know. Regardless, we uh, we move on. I'm going to skip over what I put in the study guide uh, so that we can do Second Corinthians three. I have a question. What is Parush? A big part. Parush. I'm reading in Philippians three five where he goes over qualifications of who he is. Right. Written in law on the eighth day, an Israelite by birth, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew speaker. Yeah. In regard to the Torah. A Parush. Is that like the Parushim? Yeah, he's a, he's a Pharisee. Pharisee. Right. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Like off and out of Parushim. Yeah. 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 That is. Uh, you're reading a version that brings both together. Right. Parusayas is the Greek. Right. Okay. So he's a Pharisee. Pharisee. Yeah. That's it. But not all Pharisees are rabbis. Is that what you're getting at? Well, Pharisees are—it's well, a, a sect. It's a sect, right? So right. not all rabbinic, no, not rabbis. all not all Baptists, and they're not don't dance. Right. Anyway. And on top of that, <laughs> it's anachronistic to say that Orthodox Judaism is the Pharisees. Right. The Pharisees were the precursors of rabbinic of rabbinic Judaism, Judaism that became what is today Orthodox Judaism. Right. But of course, Orthodox Judaism today has like five branches anyway. at least. So the point is that it's it's a mistake to say well. The Shulchan Aruch says that must be what the Pharisees said two thousand years ago. Right. Yeah, it's a anachronistic. All right. So help us understand what a Kalvakomer argument is. Um. So it's light versus heavy. The idea being, and you see this in the the Talmud and whatnot all the well, time. Well, instead of Talmud, give me an example from Volkswagen or something like that. Oh, that, uh, well, right. That um, comes together. Thank today. you for that because I, I actually can't <laughs> think of an example from the Talmud off the top of my head. Um, but like, it would be something to the akin of, um, well, actually, we use phrases like this quite a bit. If you think that's great, what about there X? Is. Nice. So nice. if you if you're talking about you're making a comparison, um, 
and this is a, a Jewish rhetorical device, is to use extremes. Yeah. This is something you see all the time. And so when you're making a comparison, the light versus heavy, the idea is you're trying to demonstrate how great something is, if something is, by comparing it to something else. It's also pretty great. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the, the most important part to, to recognize, is that in the Call of the Comer arguments, biblically, the author, author normally starts by lifting up the light one, making big of it. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. I mean, this is, this is top shelf. But now you think that's big. <sighs> Look at this. This is even more better. That kind of thing. And, and that's what we see Paul using here in 2 Corinthians 3, um, where I, quite frankly, he goes out on a limb. I mean, we're talking 2,000 years ago, so who's the bee's knees? It's Moses. You can compare yourself to anybody you want, but you don't compare yourself to Moses because Moses, oh, he's the bee's knees. But again, a Jewish rhetorical device is to use extremes. Right. If you read the Talmud, you'll find some of the weirdest and sometimes most disturbing arguments being made, and you think to yourself, where is this coming from? And the reason is they want it to be memorable. They want to make a point. That's right. And in, in modern, I mean, it's like, well, the point is that an example of this is there's a, there's a teaching that pulls from, it says that the servant, the, the borrower is sort of the lender. There's a teaching that says that if, based on that passage, if it were possible, I mean, they kind of, they, they couch it. If it were possible, then when you give money to the poor, God becomes your servant because effectively you're lending money to God because it's his job to take care of the poor. This is obviously an extreme illustration. Deliberately. On purpose. Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to argue that generosity is so important, so beautiful, and that God is so committed to rewarding it. He'll become your servant. That it's like God Himself is your servant if you will if you will give charity. And, and this is exactly where Paul comes from. Okay, I maybe I don't have to speak up. But if you are questioning my authority or whether my message is true, well then why don't, why don't we just go over the top? Why don't we just go to the extreme? And let's compare me to the ultimate teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. Unbelievable. And he does it. So let's walk through it quickly and see what he says. Basically, we begin in verse 2. You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Interesting. So we've got these letters of recommendation, which normally would be written in letters of ink, right, with real letters. But he's saying it's written on our hearts. That's interesting. So if, I, we, we don't have the whiteboard here and the folks that are listening online can't see it, um, but uh, 
Joshua's good at, at showing us where we've, we've got these indentations to see that this one matches up with the bottom one, and then the next one, you know, and you've got this chiastic kind of deal. But let's remember that he's talking about, in the beginning, letters written on hearts. So he moves on, and he references Moses. And you show that you are a letter from Messiah, delivered by us, written not with ink, as he implies in the previous verse, but with the Spirit of the living God. So written with the Spirit, not with ink, not on tablets of stone like Moses's were, but on tablets of human hearts. Here's a really funny thing about that. I heard a really interesting teaching in Israel um, from an Orthodox rabbi or teacher. I don't know if he's a rabbi or not, but he's a teacher. It was during the night of Shavuot, they stay up all night and study the Torah. So it's three in the morning. We go to this Orthodox uh, uh, synagogue, and of course, the, the, what we're all primed to do at this point is get metaphysical. I mean, you know, we're exhausted; we can barely see straight. But we're going to talk about this. And he had this really fascinating teaching that the the tablets, the initial tablets, so the second round, of course, Moses carves out. God writes on it. Right. But Moses in both carves cases. Them. But in the very first round, the tablets were carved out of like this sapphire or something or other but more importantly the tradition holds that they were all the way through so when god wrote the words it was like searing fire through ice and it's a hole that goes all the way three-dimensional goes all the way through the block and now the now the letter has to be suspended well there's i guess there's only one problem with that there's one letter in hebrew the samech there's actually a circle like an o so that means that the centerpiece, if you were to carve all the way around, three-dimensional around the centerpiece, the centerpiece would fall out. Bunk. So the floor. only way that it works is if the centerpiece suspends in space in the middle of the, the Ten Commandment block. Now, with the reason why I bring this up, why it's important, is the teacher went on to say that part of the concept that was being illustrated here was that the delivery mechanism was the message that it wasn't just the words that were written but it was where they were written and how and ironically enough he was tying that back to us to say essentially we're the message like that's what we're supposed to be we're supposed to be the tablets to be the message to not only have read it and incorporated it but to be so transformed by it that other people look at us and they go that's impossible so that that teaching is a Jewish teaching yes. that Paul up is effectively Paul. quoting here. That's it. That's exactly Or paraphrasing right. here. Yes. I don't know how old that one is, but I'm just saying like this concept is not new. Right, exactly right. So Paul's saying, you yourselves are letters of recommendation written on our hearts. Moses says, you show that you're a letter from Messiah delivered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, like Moses said, but on tablets of the human heart. So the medium on which it was written, like, Mo like Joshua said, is different. It's written on your hearts. He only wrote on tablets of stone. I'm writing on the heart. Also because the Spirit's Jeremiah, doing it. Right? Exactly. Well, it's, it leads back to, to Jeremiah 31. That's what it is, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about having it inscribed on your heart also. Yes. Inscribed on your heart, 
Deuteronomy 10, circumcising your heart. Okay. But either way, we're talking about the medium where it's written. So let's finish with Moses. Then quick. transforming a heart from stone to flesh is yeah. the quote from the prophets. Exactly. So this is not new. Ezekiel. It's all right. over the place in Ezekiel. Yes, exactly. He's right. steeped here. All right, so now we got New Covenant, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. How many times does that appear in the Bible? Once. This is one. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 is the other time. But we got New Covenant twice. How many times does Old Covenant appear? Once. Once, right here in Paul. That's it. So if you've got a, a normal English Bible and it has Old Covenant, New Covenant, they're really making a stretch here. Because only Paul uses this, this term. Okay, so we're talking about New Covenant now. So now, letters, like on Moses' tablets, which kill versus the Spirit giving life. Not of a letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he's saying, what happened when Moses gave the Torah? Was he successful? How did the people react? Were they obedient or were they disobedient? Did they mess up and need to be forgiven? Or were they like, oh yeah, Moses, that's cool. Yeah, we'll obey that. No, they were constantly being reproved because they messed up. Paul is saying, the letter kills. It condemns, but the spirit gives life, right? But I think also just quickly catch that, the condemnation and the death references here. That's next, yeah. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily a derision to the law. We're going to the whole Homer argument here. No, in no way. Because Paul's other arguments talking about the Torah, he has a valid point. The Torah, unlike the covenant given to Abraham, is essentially a reward-based covenant. God will do this, you will do that. So if you do this, God will reward you. If you don't do that, God will punish you. Well, more than that, it also tells you when you've messed up. Right. Well, he said, did we know the law by our faith, God forbid? We establish it, for I would not know and do not covet if the law had not said right. So we're going to get into Romans next right. week, so don't jump ahead. But the point being... He always wants to do right. okay. The point that I'm just trying to get at is that um, in, in, uh, in, I think it's in Galatians, which we have already read, That's right. We, he was talking about this idea that the law is the law is a rule book. We call it the law for a reason. Right. It's not a mechanism for achieving grace because it was never meant to be. Correct. It was meant to be once you've obtained grace, here's what you do. Sure. Exactly right. But now Paul is is still trying to use this time at the at the base of the mountain to say, let's look at what Moses did. Moses came down with this written code. It was written in letters on stone how did he do his ministry compared to my ministry his was a complete failure let's continue if the ministry of death that's pretty tough carved in letters on stone what is that it's the Torah came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory he had to put on this veil which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Here's your call Bacomer argument, right? If that was so cool and had so much glory when he came down from the mountain, how much more does mine? Because mine's based on the Spirit. His was based on a letter on stone. Mine is based on the Spirit. Written in letters on what? Not stone. Your 
heart. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, this is his second ding on what the Torah does, the ministry of righteousness, which is his message, must far exceed it in glory. So he's just like continuing this comparison here. Oh my goodness, Moses was just like a, a pathetic loser. Not personally, but his ministry. His effect on the people was pathetic. They were constantly sinning, constantly whining and complaining and disobeying God. They sent out the, the spies. What did they do? Disobeyed. Just keep the Sabbath. Don't, you know, go gather the manna. I'm giving you manna. Don't gather it on Shabbat. What do they do? Gather it on Shabbat. Same deal. There's problems here, but mine, he says, is better. Much more glory. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, this is the Torah, much more will what is permanent have glory. So you might wonder, well, is, is the Torah temporary and, and we're not keeping it anymore? And Paul's message, Messiah, and all that is permanent? Well, no, no, no. This is the covenant he's talking about. Not the Torah. It's the covenant. The covenant written on stone isn't going to cut it. Or I could even be a reference to Moses here, like his, his face shining. His face continued to shine. Well, it never faded. Well, recognize that, but he does eventually die, and that's all over. So. Okay, but Moses is code for the Torah, consistently. Because if Moses is veiled, the Torah is veiled. So Paul is trying to say, it's not the Torah that's, tempor that's temporary, or is going to fade away, or is, is being brought to an end, but the old covenant. The new covenant goes on forever because it has permanent glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. By we, he's speaking in the royal we. That's him. I have much boldness. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome or the goal of what was being brought to an end, or the outcome or the goal of the Torah. What's the goal of the Torah? What's the end? What's the, what's the focus of the Torah? Messiah. He was veiling so they would not see what was the end or end result or the focus of the Torah, which is Messiah. He veiled his face. When you veil Moses, you veil the Torah. It's all code here. That's the deal. The Old Covenant. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, even today, when they, the Jews, read the Old Covenant. What's the Old Covenant? It's the only time it's used in the Bible. What's he been talking about all along? Moses and the Torah, right? When they read the Torah, that same veil remains unlifted. The veil that Moses put there. Moses is still veiled. Because only through Messiah is the veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read every Shabbat mm -hmm. in the synagogue, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So what's he saying? In a nutshell, he's like, okay, you want to question my authority to teach. You want to question my smicha. Let me compare you myself with Moses. 
Okay? So Moses had a message from God. So do I. Moses came down from the mountain, and he's got the Old Covenant. What's the Old Covenant? It's not the Torah. It's the Torah written on stone. Jeremiah 31. What's the New Covenant? The Torah. Same message written on the fleshy tables of our heart. What's Paul saying? He came down with the Old Covenant. They're veiled. They can't see Messiah because of the veil. I'm coming and giving you exactly the same message. No veil. Because all I am is a spokesman. The message is being written on your hearts by the Spirit of God. And you know what that's called? That's called the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. Moses gave you the Old Covenant, and he was veiled. I'm giving you the New Covenant, which is the same message. It's the same Torah. But now you can see the goal of that message, which is Messiah. Why? Two reasons. It's no longer veiled, and it's not written on tablets of stone. It's written on the fleshy tables of your heart. It's not written by man in letters of ink. It's written by the Spirit on your heart. A couple of thoughts on the use of the term New Covenant, Old Covenant. Number one, the New Covenant reference, but all the heart references so clearly scream Jeremiah 31, which is the only other place it's referenced. It is the only other place so in the entire Bible. It seems Bible. very clear to me that he's playing off of that. Yes. But I have, an, I have a theory about the Old Covenant reference. My thought is, he is doing public homework. I think there is a certain degree of um, new, is, new is perceived to be better to some degree, upgraded, whatever. To some degree? There since, well, I think that, that seems to be present. But I also think it's interesting that he uses the term New Covenant and Old Covenant. He uses the same, the same language. But I think what you've been saying is that it's the same message. I think he's keying in on that. That it's not just that this is a new message. He's saying it's new in the same in the medium medium that we had before. It's like if I were talking, well, now it gets confusing because you have too many of them, but 10 years ago, if I were to say, you know, if you see the old Star Wars movies, you won't really understand what's going on until you see the new Star Wars movies. Most people you talk to will not say that the new ones are better, but they will understand and recognize they're the new ones. So I kind of, but, but it's the same, same context. Yeah. If I were to say, yeah. if you saw the first Star Wars, somebody be like, wait, was that, was that first chronologically or, or episode one? Like, it gets confusing. Right. All the new is being, we're talking the same category. Yep. Same category topic, one is chronologically older, one is chronologically newer. Yeah. The New Covenant is a term he's pulling from Jeremiah on purpose. You bet. Which very beautifully turns into a comparison with Old Covenant. Well, not only that, but Jeremiah makes it clear that it'll be written on your heart. Right, that's what I'm saying. He's so been saying the whole time about the heart thing. He's playing it. So, so let's look at how many things we've got that are paralleled. We've got letters written on stone or letters written with ink. Here we've got letters written on your heart with the Spirit. So where they're written and what they're written with are both different, right? What's written? Same thing. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of that. So it's not that the Torah is different. 
It's not that the message is different. It's where and how it's written. Which is Jeremiah. Exactly. But the idea that we've got the same covenant, but it's new because of where it's written and how it's written. And that's what Paul's saying is Moses failed miserably. The people constantly rebelled. They were disobedient all the time. But you, Colossians, Corinthians, Corinthians are, are, are there. You are the letters. You are my reference letters, my curriculum vitae. Because anybody can look at you. Because it's been written on your heart by the Spirit, not in letters of stone. You are evidence of the new covenant. You've been obedient. You're walking the walk. Your life has changed. You're no longer a pagan. I'm successful. Moses was a failure. And he's not dissing Moses. Because at the end of all of this, when you get the whole idea, you got a question. Who put the veil there? Why was the veil there? I don't get it. Why would Moses talk to God, proskontheo, pros, face to face, like no other prophet? And when he comes outside, he tells him what he just heard, and then puts a veil on. Well, Paul tells him. Put a veil on so they wouldn't see the end of the Torah, the whole meaning behind it. They wouldn't see Messiah. Deliberately hid Messiah from them. Why? Paul makes it clear. Not only here, but in Romans. For you. Because had they seen Messiah, they might have repented. And the kingdom would have started then. And you never would have had an opportunity to come to know Messiah. That's where he's at with Romans. Because he's, he's already given this to the Corinthians. When he gets to Romans, he's far beyond this. He's like, okay guys, we know why the masking was going on. Romans 9. They were, they were deliberately hidden from seeing Messiah. I deliberately, partially hardened them. Why? So that the Gentiles, the fullness, every one of them, it's a counting term, every one of them would have an opportunity to come in. And once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. That's where he's prepping to go. What's the Old Covenant? Letters written on stone. What's the New Covenant? Those same letters written on your heart. It's not just circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart. Who can do that? No one but God. That's the New Covenant. If you remember the Old Covenant, you cannot be saved. You will die in your sins. What is the time nature of the new covenant? Is it time bound? When did the Spirit 
write the Torah on the hearts of men. Only when Paul mentioned it to the Corinthians? Was there anyone saved prior to that? Because you can't be saved if you remember the Old Covenant. Through the Old Covenant. So, how about Abraham? Anyone that looked at Messiah. If they saw Messiah. If they saw Messiah. How can you see Messiah? If he's veiled, you can't see him. That veil is put there by God. Yes. So, God removes the veil. if God removes the veil, how does he do that? He writes that same message on your heart. Right. By the Spirit. This happened to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham, and he believed, and it was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. There's no time limit on the new covenant, only the old covenant. When did the old covenant begin? At the mountain. When did God start veiling that message? At the mountain. Who did he give the message to? His chosen people. Who did he veil it from? His chosen people. Why? So everyone else would have an opportunity. Now, when he removes the veil and writes that message on our hearts through the Spirit of God, one has to question. Paul will say, as we'll get into in the next couple of weeks in Romans, thus all Israel shall be saved. Is it all Israel from the beginning? Or is it all Israel that happens to be on the planet at that moment when Messiah comes? That's what we need to look at. But I want you to understand, if you're leaving today, that 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing, and I think just gets fed up. If you're asking me for letters of recommendation, if you want to get letters from me written on parchment with ink, then you don't know what you're talking about. Because my letter is you. Because obviously God's written his covenant on your heart. That's the new covenant. And that's so much better than what Moses did. Does that make sense? That's the new covenant. But it's the same message, which is why once we're saved, we need to walk in newness of life with the Torah as our guide, because that's what condemned us first, because we were sinners based on the law. Now we use the law as our guide for how to walk that we might not sin against him. That's why we've hid his word in our heart. Go ahead, Alex. So I want to present to you this argument then. If um, the condition of the new covenant is simply the vector at which it is delivered versus the old, the old being on stone, the new being in our hearts. The medium. The medium. Yes. Okay. Then I want to present this argument that the totality of the new covenant has not been fully implemented. Absolutely. Because Jeremiah goes on to say that when all. it is all, 
will have it, and no more will a neighbor um, right. say to his neighbor or to his son, That's know exactly. the Lord, for they will all know it. We right. agree. So then the argument is, it's always been around the new covenant concept of it being um, in our hearts. In our hearts. Yes. And then by God's grace, it being unveiled to some and not to others. Yeah. Um, and then in the future, the promise that it will be fully unveiled to all. Agreed. But I would, I would argue that it's only been veiled to the Jews. Because they were given the actual stuff by which you may be saved. And he deliberately... Pagans don't need any help missing it. That's they're exactly right. Missing it. Right. They're either automatically missing it or Psalm 19, Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory of God. And we see right before the Master was born, there was such an influx of non-Jews who wanted to know God and knew that the Jews had a conduit there that the court of the Gentiles was larger than the court of the women and the court of the men combined. That whole Temple Mount was made for us because there were so many of us that recognized the Jews have the answer. They know God. So that new covenant thing was veiled for the ones he gave it to that we might have an opportunity. Is, just a quick question. Is this yeah. building off the same um, lesson that you said this gentleman that you went to Texas presented? Is yeah. this the, Okay, because it's yeah. a phenomenal it is concept amazing. that I it really, in part, I've already understood, yeah. but to bring it to the totality that it's yeah. presented is pretty for those phenomenal. For those listening online, uh, he's referring to Tim Haig's uh, class, um, What's So New About the New Covenant. Uh, I've got it on video. I've got it on audio. It doesn't matter with Tim Haig whether you get it on audio or video. He still reads his stuff, and you get to watch him read his stuff if you get it on video. I love Tim Haig to death and could not lift him up more. It's, it's great stuff, and uh, I do it an injustice by trying to, you know, flip through it. So I wanted quickly. to give credit where it's due. Amen. It's, it's good stuff. Go ahead, Josh. So, the veil concept. Yes. Which so looks like Paul is deriding all ethnically Jewish people on the planet sure. incapable of knowing Jesus. Because right? the veil because is there. Jews. Right? That's just the curse of the Jews. Right. The irony about this is that... He's a Jew. Well, he's Jewish. <laughs> so, obviously, he's not doing yeah. that. Secondarily... And, and tens of thousands of the, Jews have already been All saved. of the original people, and by all I mean all of the original people that understood who Messiah was, That's right. were Jews. We're Jews. Um, but what's interesting about that is his concept about a veil is actually not new. Moses references this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Right before 30. Right before 30. There's an interesting couple of funny things. So first off, you use the word covenant over and over again because that's what Paul references. So Deuteronomy chapter 29, chapter 1, it says, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab. Not old or new. Wait, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. So different, but not old or new. Right, but it's nonetheless, there's this weird playoff of, there's the Sinai covenant, and that's a different one from the covenant we're talking about right now. Right. So that's already kind of like a parallel to the Second Corinthians passage. Exactly. 
Then verse 4, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So this concept within the context of a newer covenant. Newer. We can call it that. But, but, but you're, you're exactly right, Josh. And the master picks up on that very verse that Moses used. He, he talks about it. Well, then we get a quote well, from wait. Isaiah, which is also... Well, no, no, but forget Isaiah. He, the master says, the, the disciples come and say, why are you talking to them in parables? What's up with that? That's exactly where I was thinking. Right! And he quotes this. Right. He goes, they haven't been given eyes to see or ears to hear. Because if I gave them that, they would believe. They would believe. And I thought that was so cold-hearted. Cold, yeah, but why would he want to stop them? When you establish it in the context that it was for the salvation of the world, yes, then it's a greater love, and cold Vumer is established. That's light it. Light versus heavy. But then on top of that, you also okay. have to keep in mind as well that in Isaiah, the same reference is placed again in Isaiah chapter 6. God tells Isaiah, go speak to this people. But they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. Right, because I stopped them from getting and it. And Isaiah goes, how long am I supposed to talk to them? And he says, Basically, until they've all been exiled, yeah. but then I'm going to save a remnant. And the point that I'm trying to say with this is, it is about us, but it's also about them. God's essentially saying, if you seek me, you'll find me. Amen. He is Because not, people, Jewish people, including Abraham... Come to him all the time. Come to him all the time. They were his people. They Long before people. Messiah. The they argument is corporate versus individual. Yes. That's right. Corporately, right. Yeah. from a nation, right. he did it. Now, all I want you to walk out with tonight, as, as we've just discussed, is God loved you so much mm. that he specifically chose a people and deliberately blinded them partially so they would not see the Messiah when he came. Mm. So that you would have an opportunity to be saved. To me... That's not only a, a brilliant way of doing it, but it demonstrates some amazing love for the whole world, not just those he chose, but it makes clear why he chose them. And when I, when I, when I think about this, and we're, we're not going to get into this until you know three or four more weeks from now, in the, in the middle of uh, Romans 9 through uh, 11, it makes me, it makes me think, gosh, he deliberately delayed his people's understanding of himself for me. That's astonishing. It's really astonishing. It's overwhelming to me. And if that's true, then when we get to it, I've changed my perspective on, on Romans 11. Thus, all Israel should be saved. I just wonder if, you know, in a sort of a, guys, I, I beat the crap out of you. You deserved it. And you're constantly disobedient. But I hid Messiah from you so that I could bring these guys in. And, and this is the, the sheepfold that I didn't tell you about. But... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm going to give it to all of you. Thus, all Israel shall be saved, rather than, yeah, just all of you who happen to be alive when Messiah comes. I don't know. 
Maybe I'm wrong. That's my perspective yeah. today. Yeah. But to that point of the whole blinding thing, yeah. I think two things come to mind. Number one, um, again, the concept of blinding, not new, throughout the prophets and in the Torah, God repeatedly argues, look, if you don't come back, if you're not obedient, I'm going to stop talking to you. Right. I'm going to make it hard for you to hear me because the whole point of us having a relationship was that we would actually have a relationship. If you just want to use me or hope you can come back whenever you're ready, I'm going to close the door. Yeah. So part of, I mean, first of all, which is Paul's argument that punishment. Moses was it's, completely non-effectual on people. Well, non-effectual on people, but not some, but I'm just the reason why I'm saying that is God's not cruel. God's not looking at his people and going, you know, I, I, I really wanted to save you guys. Maybe I will later, but first, I really have to take it to other people first. So you guys, you're great. You're perfect, but I, I'm sorry. I just got to have to blind you. It's more like they deserved it. No, yeah, we no, gave it to yeah. them. I, I, if, if I'm implying that God was, you know, horrible to his people, that, right. that surely is not the case. God forbid. Yeah. But then the other point to say is I almost feel like this elevates the Jewish people. What, is, what does Paul say in Romans? I'm going to get ahead oh, man. of this a yeah, yeah. Uh, To what, they to what given, benefit is it to have the oracles of God? I, I, I get mean, a dozen what, things what I listen to the study guide. What benefit is to be a Jew yeah. in, this, in, uh, every in every way. way? So it's almost to say, if God had not have blinded them, even in spite of all their disobedience, all the mistakes they made, Bam! they Messiah would have automatically seen it because that's who they are. That's right. They're so in tune with God yes. just naturally. Yes. That if God had not blocked it from those who were rebellious, they would have seen it anyway. That's right. And when they saw it, and as a nation they repented and turned to Messiah, Messiah would have come. Messiah did come, and you and I would never have been born. Right. And they're lost. So we keep using Roman references, and we haven't gotten there. That's right. Know, that's yeah, right. That's next week, here. actually. Um, <laughs> I. It, it's difficult for me now because as a as a Bible teacher, I wanna I wanna teach on these books, but that's not the purpose of this course. So you're gonna find that we're gonna fly through Romans, one, two, and three, one, one, one lesson, four, five, and six, one lesson, seven, eight, and seven and eight, I think, six, seven, eight, one lesson, nine, ten, eleven. But this is really the way that you should be doing it. I I thought it was fascinating reading through Corinthians. I didn't realize for the entire book until Sunday. So I packed the whole book into like basically go. the last yeah. two days. Yeah. Um, in reading it that fast, I'm reminded that it's a letter. Yeah. yeah. I think a mistake we made, I mean, and this is not to Six verses at a time. We appreciate the, the monks who broke this down for us, but they also did us a bit of a disservice. Right. Because yeah. we have a bad habit. Oh, chapter break. Or worse, time for a bathroom break. Subject headings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going through and you're like, oh, I just want to read about treasures in Jarrah's place. I'm going to read seven verses here, and that's all I'm going to read. Right. And it's like, that's actually in the context of the entire book. And I was amazed as I was reading through 2 Corinthians how basically the entire book is essentially right. one message. That's right. I had always assumed it was, you know, like Multiple. 1 Corinthians, yeah, it's like yeah. nine or ten different messages. Yeah. It is, it but is he's astonishing. basically saying the same thing the whole yeah. way through. It's astonishing how, how consistent it is, and you're right. And I, I, I hate that. And that's why in some of the lessons I say, just read it through. Don't 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 get bogged down. Just read the whole letter. But Romans is especially helpful in this because what's oftentimes mistakenly done is sermons are preached on six verses or on a chapter, and 
if you read Romans, especially, really, especially 1 through 3, separately, yeah. you'll miss the entire point of his argument. That's right. And you'll get bogged down in his derision of religious people in chapter 2 yeah. and miss what he's trying to say in the whole context. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying in the Romans thing, because I've already got those written all the way. We're up to 12 now. I've got the next three or four lessons done, and they're online. Um, but bottom line is, we're gonna we're gonna take it in, in fairly large chunks and just move through it quickly, just so we get the the flavor of where he's coming from, and and we'll see. Um, Greg Bartos, who's uh, driving uh, back from Tennessee with his uh, family, uh, writes, "But the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it." Uh, and that's from today's Aliyah, and of course it is from exactly what we're teaching about. Next time, Paul's a big fan of Deuteronomy. He is, and you know, quite frankly, um, I've got a couple of things in there. And in, in fact, uh, before we close, let's go ahead and look at the beginning of. Uh, Can I just do something in real quick? Yeah. So, I just wanted to, as I was reading through Second Corinthians, there were several things that kind of leapt out at me that are very Jewish. I just wanted to throw one in as an example. Yeah. Um, because I think it's I think it's helpful to, as we read through these things to see Paul's arguments that do sound very Jewish, because when you see things like chapter three, we've been so steeped in arguments saying that Paul is trying to undercut Judaism, that it's it's well, even in his day they thought that right they did, and it's very easy to to lose track of the person writing the letter. Yeah. So chapter five he references. Um, he talks about if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, that we would be further clothed, so as more to be swallowed up by the light. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit of guarantee. Um, he's referencing this idea of, of clothing and putting the context kind of... of um, righteousness mm -hmm. and immortality which is interesting um because i think all the gentlemen in this room were up way too late the night before my son's circumcision <laughs> a couple weeks ago and we read a passage in the kabbalah right that referenced this rather bizarre sounding idea that adam saw everybody for all time right all the souls really all the souls but he saw them in like their immortal state, which interestingly enough, their pre-sinning state. Yeah, well, well, yeah, but there was like, well, it wasn't so much their pre-sinning state; it was their final state, and their final state. Well, we have to assume was, that that's, was their original state. As well, well, was the well, the, that's what was interesting was the Kabbalah references this idea that your final state was determined by the righteousness in your life, and that is kind of how you look. So I don't know. I oh, guess if I see you're what you're essentially, yeah. I guess if you're if you're, um, you know, uh, yeah. you're let's just say if, if you kind of look like one of those weird zombie type characters, you didn't live a very good life. Dirty and in rags. Yeah. yeah. So this idea of immortality, putting on new bodies, clothing, and righteousness, is a very Jewish concept. Yeah. Um, we referenced when we read that passage in the Kabbalah. We referenced to a revelation which makes some of the same comments. True. So the, I guess, again, I, I throw that out there as an illustration where um, 
I always think it's kind of a funny question. Did Paul get it from them or did they get it from them? Right, or right. They both get it from the same place. But the point is that Paul's teachings are, even in the winter chapter 3, are so in line with Jewish midrash, Jewish rhetorical style, Jewish imagery. Yeah. He's not combating Judaism. He is having an eternal debate with Judaism. Sure. I mean, he's with them hand in hand. And he is presenting the Torah position to those who may be half a bubble off plumb. But here, he's working with Moses and Jeremiah to come to the conclusion that we know why the veil was there. And we know what the new covenant is. You want my credentials? The people that I, that I preach to are members of the new covenant. Not all of those who Moses preached to are in the New Covenant. Most of them were in the Old Covenant. And that's his, that's his argument. Well, and he has an interesting point on this, that if you read the prophets, and Rabbi Gimpel, in his teachings on the book of Joshua, goes this direction as well. Gentiles being drawn to, to God or rather, it, Rabbi Gimpel referencing Jews seeking out Gentiles to bring them into the kingdom of God is a sign of Messiah. Amen. And in that context... Which is why he loves spending No wonder Paul... Yeah, right, exactly. No wonder Paul is pointing at the Corinthians as evidence of the new covenant. Exactly. It's like, you guys are a miracle. It's you like, shouldn't be it's here. Like, hello? This has never happened before. Gentiles have the spirit. Yeah. All right. So let's close with uh, the beginning of my uh, study guide here. The reference is to the brother. Two times. I'm going to send the brother to you. It's almost like an Italian thing, right? And so he's going to take you out at the knees. <laughs> the brother's going to show. So he's coming to Corinth with another guy. He is famous. What's he famous for? Do we have to look it up? Mm -hmm. He's famous for the gospel. For preaching the gospel. That's exactly right. What is this, chapter 7? Mm -hmm. Let me... Uh, Got to be later. Got to be 9. Kind of made me wonder if it was Luke. I was wondering about that, but not sure. So in uh, or possibly John, who doesn't like being named in any of his writings. Right, but that's when John's writing. John doesn't mention John. But Paul could have been doing it as a courtesy. Nice. All right. With whom we are sending, I'm going to send you Titus. With whom we are sending, Second uh, Corinthians eight eighteen, the brother, who is famous among all the assemblies for his preaching of the gospel. I thought immediately of Apollos, but don't know. And then later, Second Corinthians twelve eighteen, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. 
Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So there you go. That's the brother. Who's the brother? Who is this guy? Who's He's Titus? famous. No, not Titus, but the brother. Oh. And sent our brother with him. Okay, I see. Unless it's a reference back to Timothy from the beginning, because Timothy is called brother in chapter 1. Yeah, mm-hmm. Timothy, our brother. Mm-hmm. Our brother, not the brother. He talks about Timothy but later on. In chapter 12, it as he does with Titus. Titus, it said um, Titus and our brother. So he uses our brother in chapter 12. Right, but in 18, it's the brother. Okay. Is that just semantic? It's the definite article in the Greek, so it's a guy. Okay. It's a specific guy he's referencing in definitive. Okay. So don't know who he is. And I, I wish, you know, I wasn't being aloof. Okay. I really don't know who it is. I thought Apollos. I'm not going to say Timothy. Timothy, Timothy Luke seems to match that. Seem to be a couple of names. Who? Luke. Just <clears throat> because Luke doesn't get referenced by name very often. Well, who is, uh, Luke is not his amanuensis. It's not the man who writes for him. So the idea that it would be Luke... Oh, yeah, he does have, he says he has bright spirits. Oh, actually, we don't know. No. There are some who say it could be Philemon. Right. Um, who was the slave anyway, right? Right. Or the owner of a slave. So. Yeah, who's this? Who's this? Well, he Philemon doesn't name the, the owner. Oh, right. Okay. He just says, Philemon, I'm writing to you, so, that you is. know, your slave is here, so. Hmm. And I'm not supposed to give him back, because that's what the Torah says, so. But I don't know who the brother is. But I just wonder, I was not chosen by God to be alive when the scriptures were penned. And it's not possible for me to appear in them. So I'm, I'm reminded of the Rishonim. These are the guys in the first half of that wall who are literally mentioned in the, in the Talmud. They're mentioned in the Mishnah. These are the guys that are quoted later on by the Yacharani, the second ones, or the ones who come later. Could be Yeshua's brother. Could be. Could be we John's. name we Could name be. all the people yeah. in the scripture. We know who they are. The church. But this is the brother. I think he was a the brother. The who is church. it that's got a reputation for preaching the gospel? Right. Apollos comes to mind. Peter was but astonishing. But he calls Peter by name in Galatians. He does. Which seems odd. He calls Apollos by name. Right. In First Corinthians. Right. It really seems to me that it's somebody who's... That's why I thought of John. Only because it comes across almost as someone who's too modest to really like to be named. Maybe. Um, so he's like deferring and... Yeah. I know, is, that, I know he doesn't want any... Uh, any press, but the brother who is famous for preaching the gospel. Right. I'm sending that brother to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, the, but it's interesting that, um, uh, you know, the, the reason why this guy's being sent is 
Paul's a little bit nervous. He's got the Corinthians said, we love the idea of fundraising for the saints in Jerusalem. We'll gladly give you, you know, a nice charitable yeah. gift yeah. when you come back. Paul's getting ready to come back, and he's like, you know, I'm going to have these other people with me who've heard about this amazing plan you have. And since you're taking up a collection on the first day of the week. It'd be preferable if you, maybe you had that ready when I got there. When they so get that, there. Because they're coming with me, and I'd rather them not, oh, you man. know. Such an embarrassing, awkward. awkward moment. Yeah. Still, the brother. It just seems awkward to me that he does that. Oh, yeah. John is a... I'll give you John. I'll give you John. That's just a possibility. Yeah. Another thing, that's, another mystery of Second Corinthians that is typically explained by the, the church today um, is there's references to this guy. He shows up a couple times. I think chapter 7 maybe and then chapter 4. Um, dealing with this guy kind of gets in trouble. They kind of got really, really tough on him. He's saying, I forgive him. You should forgive him too. And so the church's interpretation traditionally is that this is the guy who's hinky with his mother-in-law mother -in -law from yeah, first, Corinthians. 12, first Corinthians. So that this reference here is saying the guy comes to repentance. And the, the, the Corinthians uh, expel him to some degree, um, exile him from the community. He repents... And Paul's right back to him saying, this is great. We're good now. We don't need to, it doesn't need to be like a permanent excommunication. The whole point was to get him to repent. So yeah. that happened, and now we're okay. And by the way, I'm so glad to see that you guys repented and that my harsh words resulted yeah. in a godly change and not simply to make you sad. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I actually think it is that guy. It does seem to fit. Yep. It's hard to fit it to anybody else. <laughs> It, you know, unless he had that conversation with them directly rather than in a letter. But it was in a letter. I think it's got to be that guy, and praise God, he did repent. So, yeah, I don't have any problem with that at all. I'm, I'm with you on that one. Hmm. I, I think the church, context, yeah. quite frankly, got that one right. Right. Shocker, that. There are some. So, questions on 2 Corinthians 3? Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. To me, when I read 2 Corinthians 3, in light of Tim's teaching... In, in which I just tried to weakly reiterate, I get it. I, I understand the old covenant and the new covenant. That if all you got was the Torah written on stone, and that's all you've got, you're going to die. That's not good enough. You can keep the Torah all you want. You'll never be good enough. That's a member of the old covenant. But if you get it, if God opens your eyes, removes the veil, and shows you that the whole idea is you can't do it. You blew it. i got to fix it. I did fix it. It's him. Trust that. Do this. I got gotcha. you. Amen. That's the new covenant. And it's written on your heart, not by anything you do. It's written on your heart by the Spirit of God. That's the new covenant. So if you're under the old covenant, you're going to burn in hell. There's no two ways about it. Doesn't matter how good you are. If you remember the new covenant, do you have a place in the world to come? How'd you get in the old covenant? Well, we're talking about us. We didn't even get that far. We didn't get enough. We were never a part of the old covenant. 
unless you've been led to believe that if you keep the Torah, you can have a place in the world to come. Be really good. Come on, Jonathan, be really, really, no, no, I mean really, really good. Then you're under the old covenant, and you're going to burn hell. The only way you can have a place in the world to come, according to Paul, is to compare Moses with his ministry. Moses brought it down, and they did not see the reason, the goal, the end game. The end game is Messiah. It was veiled from them. Why? Because Moses was veiled. Why did he put the veil on? Did Moses do anything God didn't tell him to do except strike that rock twice? He's a picture of Messiah. Is there anything that Messiah didn't do that was led by that wasn't led by, by God Himself? But if you look at his ministry, that all he did was speak. And the Torah, the Torah was written on the hearts of the hearers by the Spirit of God. That's the new covenant. And that gets you a place in the world to come. And if somebody's trying to convince you now, because I don't have the right credentials, that you gotta be circumcised, and all you're gonna do is move from the new covenant back to the old covenant. Oh, to the old covenant. Can't go back to the old covenant because you're Gentiles and you're there in the first place. <laughs> so you're putting yourself under bondage. You're putting yourself, yourself under law. You want to be under grace. Does that have anything to do with the Torah? No. Law, grace. The law is going to kill you. The letter kills. It's all it can do. But if the law is written on your heart, then it's Messiah who grants you life. And the Torah is your guide for that life. That's the new covenant. It's so beautiful. Yes, sir. Um, I've always held on to this belief concerning the new covenant. The heart of the new covenant is to underline or to understand the underlying principles of the law and then walk out its spirit. That has always been my original concept. Pro provided that you understand the underlying principles are that Messiah grants you life. Because Messiah is necessary to pay the price for your sin. Because the sin that soul that the, the soul that sins shall surely die. There's no way to undo that because that's what the law says. The only way to undo that is for somebody to die in your place. So a substitutionary atonement, or as the Talmud says, the Midrash, as the Midrash says, God will take one of the righteous of Israel as atonement for all of the people. And of course, the, the underlying principles don't undermine or contradict the overlying written word that, that ultimately, you know, God's explicit commands are the standard of righteousness Amen. still. And always will be. That's why the Torah is written on our hearts. If God had intended to abrogate it, wouldn't he write something else there? Sure. Well, my understanding of the underlying principles also included why do we need a savior? Oh, there you go. And the concept was that you have to have someone who is able to keep, a judge has to be perfect, blameless in all areas of that which he is condemning or judging you on. And you have to have a savior, in this case Messiah, who was able to keep it perfectly because only he can righteously judge you. Because if he broke any of those, then he is not. He's not judge. Yeah. I think I, th I, I would I would word it better and say. Well, he kept. This it. would be a different sure, concept, sure. but for me, 
Yeshua is Yehovah in human form. I don't see a difference right. between I, that. Yeah, so I, I, I get him that. implementing justice sure. and judgment but is I, no different than No, I, I'm with you on that. So. But I, I think if we're going to talk about the sacrifice and we're going to talk about the, the, the payment and the judge, we should try to distinguish just so people can understand there is a payment necessary for your sin. That was paid by the Son. No question about it. Mm -hmm. That was paid by God. So the judge becomes the sacrifice and the payment of the penalty so that you can go free. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. But, you know, I just want to make it clear that there needs to be, you're right, it's right there in the Torah. There needs to be a payment, a life for a life. That life was given that we might be free. That is what was veiled. That Messiah would actually do that for us is what was veiled. And it still is. I think that's interesting. As you well, that's, look what, at, that's what Paul says to you, this very day. If you look at Orthodox Judaism, aside from the, even, even on a really mystical level, who Messiah is, not Yeshua's name, but who Messiah is um, categorically, is almost splitting hairs in terms of differences between us and them. Like, I mean, really close. Yeah. But when it comes to substitutionary atonement, there's a chasm. Judaism does not agree that there needs to be, I mean, there is teachings in ancient Judaism sure. that point to that at the Midrash that you quoted. Yeah. But modern Judaism does not agree Correct. that there needs to be a substitutionary atonement. So this particular because issue... Because modern Judaism believes that just what they believe in the Master's Day. That's what Nicodemus thought. Right. But I'm actually, Jewish. modern Judaism would take this with an I'm, extra step because well, well, in that day, they had the temple, and the temple reinforced the concept exactly of substitutionary atonement. Yeah. But so, after the so, temple was destroyed, the theological argument, which is not incorrect, of saying that our good deeds and our prayers are also sacrifices yeah. and therefore are fill-ins during this season, which I don't think is wrong. Um, nonetheless, there are there there is a segment of Judaism and even still kind of a thematic element of this throughout all of Orthodox Judaism that almost kind of implies maybe we don't need the sacrifices anymore because of, of, of what we can do. So my point is to say that like that issue that you're talking about, the substitutionary atonement issue, that generally I think genuinely is talking about a veil covering that that is blocked. And that's what Paul is saying. It's still there. But I would argue that Nicodemus believed exactly what today's Jews believe. That all Jews. I'm Jewish. Right. Therefore, I have a place in the world to come. What are you talking about? Be born Wrong again. Born again? That's a, that's a concept for non-Jews. No, I'm a Jew. I don't I mean, Maybe you missed that. You know, I'm a Jew. It's, what's he thinking? I have a place in the world to come because I'm Jewish. That's what they believe today. Right? Same deal. Hmm. So the veil is there. And I'm just astonished. I'm, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that God would veil Messiah from his own people that he chose deliberately for us. You know, and I would argue for me. Forget you. For me. I saw a picture 
of a young Jewish man, IDF soldier, leaning against a T um, tank with his talit as they're getting ready to go into Operation, I think Casting Light it was. And he's just crying out, you know, pouring out his heart to yeah. Hashem. And I was, I mean, while I was looking at this picture, it just broke my heart to think, you know, he is missing the Messiah. And what does that mean with regards to his salvation? How does that work with regards to he is so genuinely crying out and he might go in and die? Sure. Where does that put him? Yeah. And it just, it's its hard for me to fathom how this well, we're works. Well, we're going to talk about that in, in, uh, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, mostly 11. Um, but that's three weeks from now. So. And in that particular person, um, we don't know. That's right. What he's the veil may have already been lifted. We don't, yeah, yeah. There's right? a lot of. I'm just not as a generalization. Right. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We get it. Yeah. But, he's, he's but even, but even we to, can hope. But even, even to the point we talked about Romans, I think that there's. I think there's enough vagueness in the scriptures to simply say, when it comes to Jews, I don't know. I genuinely quite, don't quite frankly, know. Frankly, my current position end is exactly that. We don't know. We we don't. I mean, you can you can argue one point, one side or the other, all you want. But you know, really, if you look at the scripture, you can't tell. I mean, I know that faith in Messiah is necessary. The exact timing of that, the structure of how that works. What God counts or doesn't count, or all of that, I don't know. I trust or, the or, judge of all to or, be able to figure that out. I mean, or worse, that the judge of all the earth, who is righteous in all his deeds, would look at a man who has been deliberately blinded by Hashem himself and is hoping for and hastening the coming of Messiah, though he. Delays, yet will he still trust and believe in Messiah and that coming redemption, keeping righteously all of the commands, like Simeon, like Anna, like Zechariah, like Elisheb, like Miriam, like Yosef, like many people, righteous according to the law. I gotta believe. I gotta believe Hashem the righteous will do something for this guy. Maybe it's just open his eyes. Maybe it's just reveal the Messiah right before he dies. Maybe I, maybe fill in the blank. I don't know. All I know is there's no way the God that I know will let this man die in his sins, having blinded him himself. Yea, though he is righteous, according to the Torah. And it's, again, our not it's not our responsibility either. It's not our I responsibility, have, and I think Joshua for, was right yeah. before. We don't know. I have enough of my own salvation that I need to see I constantly. Mean, I know the promise that there is, and I know how to get there now, but that doesn't mean I'm going to walk it out, so... I still have that. I mean, that's what Paul says at the end of this book, right? He's like, test yourselves. Yes, to see if you're in the faith. To see. And Romans 7 is, is just, to me, is a joy because, you know, here's this unbelievably righteous guy. The things I want to do, that's what I don't do. 
the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing that. Who is going to save me from this wretched body? Praise be to Messiah Yeshua. Final comments. You've been amazingly quiet. Yeah. Bare knees. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You good? I'm good. Yeah. All right. I think understanding the Old and New Covenant is so critical. And I've been walking this walk for a very, very, very long time before I really came to an understanding that the Torah is not the covenant. The terms, right? He writes the Torah in letters of stone or in letters of ink, and these kill. Why do they kill? Because it shows me that I need a Messiah and I cannot do it. The soul that sin, soul that sin shall surely die. But when he chooses to write the Torah on my heart, same Torah, with the Spirit, and circumcises my heart, then in faith. I trust in Messiah and his finished work. And the Torah becomes life. It's how I should live. And I shall live by my faith. It comes together. It makes so much sense. And I feel good about it. Pray for us. Father, what overwhelming joy you have brought us. We just uh, we bless you and we thank you. Uh, thank you for gathering us all together. Thank you for continually teaching us and uh, we just offer our hearts to you and just continually to write your toil on our hearts and mm. continually let us see you, Messiah, in all things and at all times. Strengthen us Send us out and let us be a light for others to see as well. We thank you and praise you. Yeshua's holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother.